This week on Merchants of Change, we've got JTI. JT played college football for the Rice University Owls and the South Carolina Gamecocks before going to training camp with the Carolina Panthers. JT started his selling career at HashiCorp before landing at Strong DM, where he sells their people-first access platform that gives technical staff access to the infrastructure they need to be productive. Here he is, JTI. I'm JR Butler, co-founder of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes into being a professional technology salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change. What's up, kid? How we doing? And what's going on, JT? Doing good, man. Good to be chatting to you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Good to Early see you. Early morning for you, Butler. That's right. That's right. Live, live from Las Vegas. Um, <laughs> Happy to be here. No, I'm, I'm, I'm JT. I'm, we're so excited to have you. Um, I know, uh, I know you, you've listened to a couple episodes. You know, this show is all, all about. We want to get in front of new sellers um, and people who might be considering a career shift into sales. Um, and most of our guests are just like you, high-level former athletes who have found some success in sales. So um, we really like to start with the sports stuff. Um, Listen, man, you played sports at the highest level, big, big wins in high school and college, all the way to the NFL. Um, take us back. What are some of your favorite memories, JT, from from your athletic days? Yeah, I would probably say my my favorite memory was my junior year. I don't know. you. I'm from Texas, so Texas football is like the real deal, right? We play in my district. It was Theater Hill, DeSoto, and Duncanville. Uh, which are like the top three schools in the state. Uh, in my junior year, we were playing Cedar Hill, and we had to win this game to go into playoffs. And I had an interception return for like 60 yards, and I had the game-winning pass breakup. And that took us into the playoffs, and we went three rounds deep that year. Uh, that was dope, yeah. That was, that was number one. Over like over the Georgia win, over making it to the league, like that win was like <laughs> we, were on, we were on TV. We were on TV. We were on everything. It was, it was great. I love hear I love hearing that because high school is like so much bigger than anything else. Like especially a pick, like oh man, it's just like it's big time. That just shows you how big Texas high school football is. My man beat Georgia, and he's like, yeah, my junior year of high school. I love it. <laughs> That's unbelievable, man. I love that. Uh, Do you have the full stadiums down there. Like, how big was your high school stadium? Was it like so? Mansfield, it's we're like a powerhouse now. Uh, our stadium's massive. Like, I had more people in my high school games than I had at Rice. It was, oh my yeah, God. yeah, it was pretty legit. Yeah, I, I like hearing that because my, I grew up in Mansfield, Massachusetts, where we're a powerhouse in Massachusetts, but you know, usually top three every year, but nothing. I, they play out of state, usually like Ohio, New Jersey, and stuff, but Texas and Florida, like, real deal. We would have like 8,000 people at our big games, and the stadium fit, I think, 15. Holy. Wow, that's, that's more than that's more than we had in college. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. What do you, what do you think? Um, how do you think your old teammates would describe you, JT? Just the guy that didn't stop, like 
constant work. Uh, I forgot what I was what I was reading the other day, but it was like there's like three things that are certain in life. It's like uncertainty because you don't know the future, and then like pain because that's just the reality of life, and then constant work. Uh, but I was just the guy. They'd probably say I was the guy that did too much. Uh, that's just I was just so focused my whole life. Do you have any? Uh, so out of high school, college, all these different levels. Do you have any favorite teammates? Yeah, dude. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys are still like. I'm sure you guys are still best friends with your high school teammates. Like, I'm still best friends with my high school teammates. Um, I'm st- really good friends with my college, a couple of my college buddies that we were roommates. And then, yeah, I don't know, my, my favorite teammate. I will say, I'll tell the story. My guy, BMAC. So BMAC was wild, right? Brian Womack, he's a lawyer now. Uh, BMAC was wild. He was just like a savage and and. Being at Rice, there weren't a lot of guys that were just like, you know, there weren't a lot of next level guys, but this guy was next level in terms of like how he thought about life. And this dude used to eat like raw eggs, spinach, rice, chicken, like he was shredded, big, like big dude playing defensive end. He ended up going to the Rams and and playing there. He set records in Conference USA. Um, And he was just a savage. He was like, get your hands off your hips. Don't bend over. That's weakness. Like you can't show that to the opponent. He was just, he was just crazy, but he instilled that in like all of us elite players at Rice. And then like it just transitioned and then we all made it to like the next level. Uh, with my guy BMAC, shout out to BMAC. I got to send him this. That's awesome. That's awesome. Raw eggs, that's ridiculous. (laughs) This dude's nuts. That's like intense. Just cook them. They take two seconds. Yeah. <laughs> and we're at we're 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 at like eating at the dormitory. So like they can make you know the chefs are gonna make whatever we want them to make. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, dude. That's good. So let's tra- let's transition a little bit. Uh, you know, I know you had your sights set on you know the NFL, and that usually kind of has like Plan B is not really in existence. So can you talk a little bit about? approaching, you know, the new plan into, into sales and into your career? Yeah, uh, I think I was, I was telling Tom about this, right? Uh, BMAC, he was one of the guys, he's like, he told me, he's like, look, JT, I was 19 at the time. You can't chase two things at once. Like, if you want to be a football player, you have to commit to being a football player or like at Rice, or if you want to be a student, commit to being a student. You can't chase both at once. And so he was like, look, you have to have a plan A and don't have a plan B because it's going to distract you from your plan A. And so like at that moment, it was like commit to football. And then once football is over, I will take the pivot or I'll be like a merchant of change and go to my next, my next path. And so, you know, once football was over for me and I didn't make it cause I'm not good enough. It was, all right, let's go make some money and uh, you know, transition in sales. Yeah. I, I, I'm a big believer, like how you do anything is how you do everything, which I think is just another way to say what you said. Um, and I think if you're going to do something, you got to do it right. Like you don't want to have any regrets. Um, but I also think, you know, one of the cool things about athletics specifically JT is, is it a lot of what you do to apply yourself to get to the level you got to is, is very translatable to sales specifically, obviously that's why we started our company, but what it like, was it always sales for you? Like how, how did you, 
how did you come up when, when it was like, all right, I, now it's time for plan B, the NFL's over. Like, how did you come up with making a new plan? Like, what, how do you forget about sales or whatever? How did you decide to decide like your boy BMAC is a lawyer? Um, how did you, like, what was your path? You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, I'd be curious to hear y'all's path too. Cause, I, uh, like, I like hearing people's stories and I'm, I'm fresh out. I'm fresh out of plan. So I'm still discovering my path, but sales was, that was just what the guys, that was what all the guys went to. BMAX a lawyer cause his dad was a lawyer, but all my other friends, they just went into sales. So I have guys in real estate, uh, brokers, guys in med device sales. And then I had a couple guys in software sales and, uh, it's kind of like when you go to school, you have some skills, right? But I think as athletes, the number one skill we have is we know how to work, we know how to hustle, and we know how to be strategic about it. And I could apply those skills easily to sales and then have the linear ability to scale my income rather than in any other profession. Got it. Yeah. I think for my, like, just taking the mic for a second, but my way into sales was kind of like, I, I already had a career that wasn't, it wasn't the NFL or anything like that, but I was in finance. And like you said, I started talking to some of my friends and I was talking to my friends in different industries. And when I talked to the guys in software sales, for me, selfishly, I was like, what's the money like? Yeah, you know? bro, like, yeah. That, that was like, <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm asking all my friends, like how much money you make, how many hours of work do you week? Do you go to office? Like, like, you know, and it was just, my guys in software, they would just seem the happiest. Uh, I mean, I got friends who are in real estate that make crazy money, but it's like a super, 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 super grind that you couldn't even like, that's just a different world. Uh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's quality of life and money for me. Like I talked to a med device sales guy and he was like, yeah, I'm in the operating room. And I was like, oh, no, nah, I got a bad stomach. I wouldn't, yeah. <laughs> not for me. Yeah. In the <laughs> Yeah, 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 no way, no way. So, um, JR, what about you? You, I know you probably mentioned it before, but I know. I, so if I'm being honest, I tripped and fell into it because, like, this guy at a bar was like, convinced me that I could sell software and told me that I would make a lot of money. But, like, so, so when I first did it, I was kind of like, all right, let's see if this guy's right. But, like, literally after three days, after talk, meeting the sales guys that I was B, I was a BDR, meeting the, the sales guys and girls that I was supporting and like asking them exactly what you did, JT. Like, how much money do you guys, I didn't really have to ask them because I saw the cars they were driving. I saw the suits and the, and the watches they were wearing and the bag that the, the women had. I'm like, these people are making bank. And I was like, and they're, they're not working. Like my parents, both had two jobs my entire life just to like afford to live our lifestyle. And these people were like coming in at like, you know, they're coming in early, but they're done at like four o'clock, like going to play golf. And I'm like, these guys are making so much money and they're not working that hard. Like I would, I I can work harder than them and I'm, and I'm just as smart as them. I can make, so like it really came down to literally like, number of hours worked versus number of dollars that you can make and like doing that math. Like, yeah, I know you could be a lawyer, you could be a doctor, you know, you could, you can become an investment banker. I had buddies that did that. John and I both did like you, JT, we went to a, 
really like high, high, th- highly thought of academic institution, Holy Cross, right? Like very similar kind of student body to Rice, right? A lot of kids that, you know, they're going to be mad when I say this, but a lot of kids that were born on third base and think they hit a triple. And, right. you know, the reality is, is like, I think they all went, a lot of them went into Wall Street and worked a hundred hours a week for a decade. And yeah, now they're all making good money, but like at what cost? Right. Like, you know, we're, I'm, I, I would argue John and I are doing probably just as well, if not better. And, you know, I, I, I didn't work a hundred hours a week ever. John, did you? No, not a, I, when I, when I was in the banks, when I was in the bank, <laughs> like, they would do the craziest thing about that is they did free breakfast, free lunch and free dinner. And at one point, one of my coworkers looks at me and he's like, they're trying to keep us here. And that's when it clicked. I was like, oh my God, they are. They don't even want us to go to Wendy's at lunch. Like they just give you food. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> not I mean, you, guys, you guys are speaking like the reality. I have friends who are in investment banking, like they're at Goldman Sachs, right? Right. And JP Morgan. And then I yep. have my, my, my sister's husband is a lawyer. My brother's a doctor. And I'm just like, this is nuts. You guys work 80 to a hundred hours a week and you're earning like the same amount. I mean, they're, they, they earn like a little bit more, but it's, yeah, but they're for, they're for seller, yeah. yeah, an enterprise seller can make the same. And they're also like 10 years older than me. Right. Right. Exactly. The age thing, exactly. Was, the age thing was big for me. Like I was like, that's cool that, you know, these people on Wall Street are making a lot of money, but they have to put in years to to, to kind of earn that title. Um, yeah. Quick transition, JT. So I actually do some speaking at universities, and I got a question recently. Like, how hard? Somebody asked me how hard was it to transition from college life to the workforce, and you know, for me that was like just a reality of like I lived in a house with eight guys, and our door didn't even lock, you know, and then I had to be on a bus at nine a.m. like or eight a.m. to get to the office by nine, like. That was a big transition for me, you know, and our, our, you know, our door, JR knows this better than anyone, didn't even lock. Like anybody could just go in our house. Like it wasn't even real life, but switching that to you, can you talk about transitioning from the highest form of athletics into like a regular civilian? Uh, I think that's still real life. I sometimes miss living with my boys. Um, It was a good life, Um, but I don't think that was the hardest transition. Like, just the living aspect. The hardest transition is just you. Like I went from a life where everybody thought just like me. We were all on the same wavelength of let's go get this money. Let's like we used to break out the huddle. Like let's get this money. Like we're we're all on the same path to go to the NFL to be the best person we could be. And then now I'm not in those locker rooms anymore. Where it's just like the constant like collective energy to achieve the same goal. Um, and that's something that I just struggle with because I didn't realize everybody didn't think like me. And so now, like I'm in the real world, I realize everybody has different motivations. Not everybody's like has the grind to just be the best person they could be in every aspect of life. Um, so yeah, I miss that. I, I, I miss, I miss like, I miss that like crazy actually. Um, yeah. But yeah. The transition, it's just a reality that, that, I think we all have to accept in life that everybody's different and we have to learn how to work with, with different minded people. What one thing, JT, I know like, you know, we, we talk to guys with gray hair a lot on here. Um, but, but I actually like talking to folks like you that are, are cold off the transition, um, more 
because I think it, it is some, it's a little bit more relevant to our audience. And, and I have a question, but first I want to make a comment about what you just said, because I want to get, I want to tell you something that, and John, I think is experiencing this now. John started his career at a really big company. And then he went to like a, a really exciting, hot, like fast growth technology company that's continuing to grow. And I was fortunate in that I went to two, uh, you know, th- I, I've had three, I've worked in three, three companies as, as a salesperson or sales leader, and all three were, were growth companies. And in two of them, I was in charge of hiring. So I, I designed it this way, but my first one, um, in my first one, I was surrounded by guys and girls, like you just said, like if we huddled, we didn't have a huddle because we were, we were a sales team. But if we huddled, we all would have said, let's get this money, right? Yeah. Like we, I was surrounded by a bunch of people that wanted to build, you know, a multi-billion dollar company and we were all willing to do whatever it took to do it. And we did it, right? We sold, the, we built the business from, you know, we, we helped build the business from a million to $200 million and sold the company for $2 billion. And I was there really early. And what I will tell you, and anybody who was part of this that played sports prior will tell you that was like the closest thing we ever got to being on an athletic team again, because it was a group of people that were similar in terms of like high intellect, high work, you know, high coachability, all those things that you had with your boys at Rice, um, all trying to achieve a really hard goal. So I guess what I'm saying to you is there will be times in your career, it won't be every company, but there will be times in your career where you capture what you just said again where you're surrounded by a bunch of people like you. Um, and that's, by the way, as you get more mature in your career, you can figure out if a company's like that during the interview process. That's what we try to teach our athletes to do. Um, because I think it is important that you you try to find those, those teams that are trying to be high achieving. That's really what you're talking about is like, you want a bunch of people that want to take it to the limit, basically. Um, sure. What... And we tell people to do that, but like, what other what other guidance do you think we should be giving to these to these people? And we work with Rice, as you know. That's how kind of how I found out about you and your name, right? And I was just on campus, which is beautiful, by the way, um, John. It reminds me a lot of Holy Cross. It's like in the middle of Houston, but it's actually in it's like a re- like a really nice, beautiful campus. Like people joke around JT that Holy Cross where John and I went to is, it looks like somebody dropped Hogwarts in the middle of the wire. That's what people say about Rice too. Yeah. And it it looks like they dropped Hogwarts in the middle of the wire where we went to school. Uh, (laughs) But um, the neighborhood's a lot nicer in Houston that you guys are in. But what, what advice would you give uh, JT to, to the athlete? We're, we're right now, like when this episode comes out, we'll have a lot of folks that graduated in December because of COVID, right? Fall athletes that are like literally, they're thinking, hopefully I can get a tryout, but if I can't get a tryout somewhere, I got to work. What would you say to them after having gone through it so recently? Yeah, uh, one, I think, I think what you're saying is completely accurate. Um, and I want to I wanna validate your point, like, yeah, being around like-minded people is extremely important. Um, but I also will say to the people who are going to graduate soon, you have to figure out what's most important to you, right? So what what was most important to me wasn't surrounding myself with like-minded people. It was one, I just wanted to be like, I wanted to make the money, 
right? So I wanted to make the money. And then I also wanted to choose the company that had the best chance of growth and was in a market that I was already comfortable in. And then it was like the people aspect was was not part of my decision process. Because I, I don't think like what you said is like you explained a unicorn, like if you have the market fit, if you have the, the market, if you have the people like that is like great. Hard. If you can yeah. find a company like that, that's amazing. It's uh, hard. But I think it's just like, what's your highest needs, right? My highest needs were I just wanted high income. I wanted the challenge to disrupt a large market. And then I wanted leaders who had done this in the past. And then obviously, like, I wanted a good backing from credible uh, investors. Who taught you that, JP? Who taught you to look at those things? Uh, I worked at, I worked at the conscious fund of venture capital. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. I worked at a psychedelic VC when I was training for pro day. And, uh, it's just, you know, that's how you have to evaluate companies. So. That's awesome. How that's many awesome. companies did you interview with before you found the one you're at? Dude. I don't know. <laughs> you got, you got to treat that like a, you got to treat that like a full-time job. That's how it was. I had like, I had like three, I had like three interviews a day. I was prepping for all the interviews and this is for like a three, for three weeks. I probably had like 25 interviews. Um, wow. That was this time around after the NFL, after grad school, it was, I didn't have as many interviews actually, maybe like seven and then three offers. Uh, but that was for a BDR role. This was for an AE role. Yep. Yep. So was it hard to do 25 interviews and how did you get 25 interviews? You work by yourself or? Yeah, dude. So I have like a very sophisticated process on where I wanted to go. One, I wanted to, I, I was only going to work at a series A or a series B startup. Uh, they had to have over 50 million in funding. They had to be disrupting like a large market. Um, and then I wasn't going to settle for anything less than like a 70, 70 split, uh, for my money. Um, and then they had to like, basically it's like, okay, who are these investors? Who's on their board? I wanted to see people who are on their board that have had like a successful exit before. I wanted to see an executive team that has done this before and had a successful exit before. Uh, there were like a bunch of different factors. And then I put all those different factors into a cover letter. And then I shipped that cover letter, like changed up a little stuff for each job I applied for. And then it was like, boom, boom, boom. We want to interview you. We want to interview you. And then on the interviews, I just explained my process. And then I explained how I would add value to whatever company I was interviewing for. And then after that, it was I was interviewing that company to just validate what I needed out of them. Damn, Rice, Rice sounds like a legit school. It sounds like they prepped you well. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's not. It's not so much Rice, dude. We were just playing football back then. We were. <laughs> we weren't doing anything, man. That's a very. That's a very good approach. That's like probably the best approach we've heard. I know. I know. Well, well, he he had the advantage of working on the venture side, right? Yeah, so he exactly. had he had venture guys. I'm sure you were calling on, you're probably yeah. calling on companies, and they were telling you like, "Hey, this is what a great company looks like." So you knew in your bones what a great company looked like, and then, but you had the intelligence of then like flipping flipping those criteria to to your side and saying, "Okay, here's here's why team, you know, in in, in venture they call it JT." Team Tam and Tech. That's what you were doing. Like 
what's the team, what's the total addressable market, and why is the tech interesting? Um, that's amazing. Um, I'm I'm curious to get your take on this because you, now you've been in in sales for a couple years. Um, if and and I think you kind of answered this already, right? But you know, as you know, right, it's a different market now, right? With all the rifts going on, there's a lot more experienced BDRs on the market. Like we, all our kids, uh, JT, are right out of sports. We put them through a training camp and then we put them in front of companies. So we've got kids who usually get multiple offers like you did. Like, is there other things they should be looking at when they evaluate their offers beyond just like, like this is net new BDR. So beyond like base and compensation, um, what other things should they be looking for beyond, you know, some of the things that you just talked about? Uh, yeah. My A that I work with at HashiCorp, well, one, all the new guys, like wherever, whatever company you go to, just find like the best sales reps and just follow them around. Like literally stick to them like a lug and follow them around. Um, but I've always been taught like, you better be learning or earning always. And the way that I looked at it is, this is why I joined HashiCorp because wanted HashiCorp, I knew I would learn and I knew I would earn, but also because I knew that this cloud, the, the cloud infrastructure market was prime for growth. And this is the market that I want to play in for as long as I'm selling software, because one, those, they're the biggest deals. One, they get paid the most, two, and then three, working at HashiCorp gave me the opportunity to learn four different verticals, infrastructure, security, networking, and application delivery. And so, like, this is what HashiCorp, this is how HashiCorp sold me, right? And so, new people coming into the workforce, you got to think, what space do I want to play in? Because it's important to pick the space, because if you learn the space, you become an expert in the space the same way we chose football early in our lives and then we continue to play and we became an expert at football i like that the space is very important it's very important like when i tell my friends i'm in cloud accounting software it's not that cool to talk about accounting but yeah. everybody has accounting standards accounting systems you know it's just like there's no way you're getting around that so yeah the infrastructure space is the, i would say they're the biggest deals out there secure especially security and is huge. So when you joined, when you joined in your first, you know, five or six months on the job, how did you set up yourself for success? At, at HashiCorp as a BDR or here at StrongDM as an AE? Your, your first one. Okay. So my first, let's see. So I was hired. I was the first inside sales rep. I was hired before my manager was hired. Um, and then wow. they hired like seven other people. So there was like no loop no playbook and Hashiko, this is like series e so they were around a thousand employees um driving driving all their revenue off of their open source and then they were like all right let's put an inside sales team together i remember that so i just looked through all the data and HashiCorp has like a huge database of everything so i just looked okay who are the top sellers in every region and then reached out to every single one of those sellers and then i looked at what are the top regions what is their revenue they were earning? And then I looked at who created the most pipeline, what people, and then I just interviewed every single one of those reps, every single one of those sales leaders. And then from there, I got to choose my territory. From there, I chose my territory 
based on that data. And then I chose my mentors and asked all of these people if I could meet with them once a week. I'll have an agenda of questions I want to ask and learn from. Uh, and so that was like my foundational component. And then from there, it was just build out the prospecting engine, uh, knowing your ICP, and then just sticking to that and being consistent with your daily metrics. It was pretty easy. I really like that you talked to like, like what you said is, you know, find the best salesperson and hang around them. That is like what you do. Uh, I try to tell people that and they're like, no, this is, you know, I'm, so many people, they're like, yeah, I'm going to lunch with my friend. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go to lunch with that person and, you know, have fun talking about last night. I'm going to go learn what they're doing. And it's like, it's crazy, you know, like if you want to get good and, and, uh, college football if you want to get good at lifting hang out with the person who's going to the gym every day you know that's, why I, was, that's why I was with BMAC that's why you can't help that. <laughs> that's I, what I mean I, I see the synergies between this guy and like the you know the top sales rep uh, it's just funny it's just funny mentorship is a big theme on this show 100%. totally totally um JT you you've been through force management hopefully you got to listen to our episode with John Kaplan the founder of uh of force management um we're big we're big here about like, you know, specific, some specific skills. Uh, so this is kind of a two-part question. I'm wondering now that you're in the closing role, right? And you're selling security, which is not, security is a hard sell because it's always, it's always something that you have to create a need for when you go into a customer. Like very rarely do they know about a problem that you solve already. So like, Tell us some like some of the skills that you're really working to hone now that you've really started to like understand what selling like unbudgeted large deals are all about. Can you share like a little bit of tactical advice with like how yeah. you're what skills you're developing and how you're approaching developing those skills? Yeah, so uh huge shout out to to my guys, Phil Lotman, Lee Chiakis, uh Tim Nochis, Josh K, David McMillan, uh, Matt Deutsch. Like I think all these guys at HashiCorp, they have a very sophisticated process on how they attach. I'm speaking about Vault, but how they attach Vault to the largest risk that a business can have. Um, and force management just reiterated that process. And uh, right, it's risk. It's it's reduce risk, reduce cost, or, or grow and scale, enable the business. And with, with, with security, it's we need to lean on risk. But the major part in every sales cycle is one, being empathetic to the person you're speaking to, understanding their problem, and then helping them understand how big of a risk that problem is. And then communicating that risk in a quantitative matter to say, hey, this risk is costing us a million dollars. Our product is only going to cost you 200000 Um I think the way I just explained it is like very simplistic because not every company cares about that risk. And then, especially in this time, it's like, dude, your product is like, like our product is, it's, it's not cheap. Right. So dude, your product is 50,000 more than anything I pay for on my stack. Right. Like how can I afford this? And so that's the challenge we're going through right now in this economic market. Um, but that's just, that's just the reality. Right. Yeah. So, so tying to that, tying to the, almost the bit, like that biggest business risk, that biggest business problem, because, you know, the reality is, is people, 
people spend six figures to solve seven figure problems and seven figures to solve eight figure problems. So if you want to sell six figures of software, you better identify an eight, an eight figure uh, problem real quick, right? Or seven, six figure, you got to find a seven figure problem for them real fast. That's the goal. And you, and you do get better at it, JT, over time, which, and I, I can tell by your personality, you're going to continue to, to get better. Um, you also learned about like command of the plan, right? And like, you know, yeah. operate, operating rhythm and operating cadence. Um, I'd love to hear from, from a, a guy who grew up with so much structure as a, as a football player. And I played football growing up too. And I, that's what I loved about it was like, this is what we did on Mondays. This is what we did on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays did we in high school, we did walkthroughs and then Friday was, you know, game day. What's your, what's your, what's your week look like now as a, as a, as a, you know, as a full-time seller, what's your operating rhythm? So my operating rhythm every morning, it's like, all right, I'm a big, like go work out and then just sit. I meditate. I use calm sit for 10 minutes and then, all right, let's go do this thing. And it's just email slack. So make sure I get everything out the way. And then mute everything like do not disturb if i have deals like right now i probably have three deals that it's tough to get it's tough to get budget like it's unbudgeted but i think we can i think we can make something work uh we got to get creative in deals around this time and it's q4 uh but so just make sure that that i'm touching all the points on my deals so like go through metric and then what i do i think yeah they talked about this force management is just at, write down the questions that you want to ask your prospect for the next call. And then once I'm done with my deals, I mean, you might have like internal meetings, but then it's just prospecting. So like right now, my operating room is like, go through all the closed loss opportunities, uh, G2, G2 uh, reviews, and then build another account list. We just got new territories based on case studies uh, from all the cloud markets from Okta, from HashiCorp. And then after that, it's just going to be built out my tier two and tier three. And then I'm going to use like an AI writer to automate my personalized messaging. Uh, but it's just, it's just prospecting at that point. Like that's still a large part of my day. So are you non-negotiable with the workout in the morning? Oh yeah. Non-negotiable. I find that to be like a, a very big challenge for myself. I like, you know, I never liked going to the weight room in college or high school. Like I was, you know, I can tell you a quick story, but I was at Brown University, uh, like summer camp, right? They invited a bunch of people to the summer camp and the guy put up 225 on the bench yeah. and I was there and I was, uh, I'm like 6'4", I was 260 at the time and he puts up 225 and I got up like twice Yeah, and everybody's just looking at me like, what are you doing here? And I was like, I don't go to the weight room. I just play football. Like, you know, I never, I hated going to the weight room and stuff, but I find, uh, you know, after college, I was like, you know, I'm not going to do that as much because we're doing like front squats and like no, dude, all kinds I, of stuff. Like I don't do none of that. Like my thing is just, <laughs> I don't do none of that. Like, I don't, I'm not lifting heavy weights. No, never doing that ever again. It's just, <laughs> I just go to the gym just to get moving. Like, I think there's yeah, something. So what do you do? What do you do? Cause I, like, I hate doing it. I'll tell you what I did today. So. I go in there, no music, set a 45 minute timer on my phone. I ride the bike till my hands get warm because there's no AC in the gym or there's no heater in the gym I go to. And then today I stretched and then I do dumbbell squats and then lap pull down and then do dead hangs and then do a little core. But it's not like 
I'm not killing myself in there. I'm really just hanging out and just like saying positive affirmations to get like, to get me rolling to start my day. And then now it's like, I had like some great ideas about like the house I'm remodeling. I'm like, all right, I should use this money to do this. I should pay off this. I should invest. Like, I guess just, it's just to get my brain rolling, to have positive thoughts and to have like, I call them breakthroughs to like think of new and great ideas that I should apply to my life. Oh, that's, that's cool. That's more like what I'm interested in. Like, you know, like, I, you know, I hear people working out and I'm like, what are they on? Like, you know, I, I think of my coach when I'm grabbing forties on the incline and he's like, John Davis, grab this 55. What are you doing? You know? And I'm, I'm in the gym, like, can't do that anymore. You know, I could, I could, but then like, I'm not eating six donuts and eggs and, you know, steak dinners. Like, anyways, it's just good to hear your perspective on that. And I like the, uh, it's all about the mental part of it too. Like getting clear. So, um, I know we're coming up on some time here, but what it, I, I love hearing about your weeks and you have a lot of great insights, JT. What are your long-term goals? Yeah. So my girlfriend talks about this a lot. I'm not much of like a, I'm not much of like a material visionary. My long-term goals is just like, it's just peace, right? Like I just want peace in my life. I want like a good family. I want a bunch of kids. I want my kids to love me. I want like my kids to grow up and work hard and not be privileged. Uh, those are like, that's like what I think about when I think about long-term life. But then I also think like, all right, I do want to make a lot of money. I do want to like not work after 30. I do want to build like an amazing company. And that's what I'm working through right now is like, cause my girlfriend's like very much so on the, like she wants the big house. She wants to, you know, build an amazing company. And I'm like, yeah, that stuff's cool. But I, I'm just trying to help. I'm just trying to hang out and have a family, but yeah. So I guess one side is like the peaceful family side. The other side is like, I want to like, I want to build, I want to build an amazing company that has like a profound idea or want to be a part of building an amazing company that has a profound idea. Um, and then I want to, I want to be like a really good landlord, uh, whatever that looks like in terms of real estate, because I think that's a great long-term investment vehicle. Um, and so that's why I was talking about with remodeling my house. Like yep. you got to start with one property and then buy the yep. next one, buy the next one. Keep rolling. Yep. J John and I, John and I have both taken our, our commission proceeds from being salespeople and sales leaders. And we both have multiple, multiple real estate properties. It's a no, it's the biggest no brainer ever. That's the biggest so that's well, smart. What are you tell you my first, my first commission check, uh, full transparency. I did buy a drone. And my boss was like, what are you doing? I lost it in the Boston Harbor, but that's a I remember that. different story. Sure but yeah, is. buying real estate is way better than buying drones. And yeah, drones are not cheap either. <laughs> yeah, he flew I was it, so excited. He flew it next to Logan Airport. And he's like, I don't know what happened to it. I'm like, dude, you can't fly near the 17th biggest airport in the world, dude. Right. That thing's fucked up by plane. <laughs> yeah, so I think I think now having some assets that can buy me multiple drones is is a lot more fun than just you know. What are y'all? Where, where are y'all? Are y'all investing locally? Yeah, I'm. I'm in. I'm. I'm in New England. I like we we got properties at colleges, which are always are a great. really good move uh, yeah. because you know tuition goes up every year. That doesn't seem to be slowing down. So that means rent goes up every year, even as you pay down the assets. So that's where I've that's where I've had the most success. Yeah, I'm in Boston and Toronto. 
So what about you, John? Are you, are you, are you, are you flipping or are you buy, buy, hold, rent? Buy, hold, rent. Yeah. yeah. Like, I've done, a, we could, I'd like to talk to you offline about this JT a little bit because I've done a lot of it in my day and uh, not a lot. It's not like, you know, 40 houses or something like that, but you learn a lot. You know, it's the same with anything, right? Like you learn, like, I remember I had a place in Florida and people were like, what are you doing in Florida? That's trash. And then last summer, everybody's like, oh, you should have kept your place. You know, like <laughs> stuff like that. So you kind of learn a lot, you know, you learn a lot. Yeah, my agent, my agent just bought a property and I don't know what it's called. It's like 701. I don't know what it's called, but it's like the southwest side of Florida. And it's apparently like a super hot spot. And like she's cash flowing instantly. It was completely turnkey. Like Florida's yeah. Florida's hot. Like especially if people can afford vacations, uh, it's hot. Yeah, and I think I, if I was a little bit too early, and people were like still looking at it as like it's Florida, but now yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff with investing in real estate. Like you can get into like the um, you know the homes that like retirement homes or, or senior living homes or substance abuse homes and stuff that like is funded through the state too, which is like tenancy is guaranteed. So. That's a cool. Yep. It's it's a yep. it's a good place to put your money. What what advice what advice do you guys you guys have on on building a company since you guys you know y'all have successfully done it? Well, Jr. Unless you want to answer, but like I'll give you a chance to talk. But like so many people, I'm like the ideas person. I yeah. have ideas. Like I could think of three ideas today to change fundamentally change like companies out there. But do I have the time to go? figure out how to do that or design an app or, you know, do something crazy? Probably not. So what I think is important is to have a forum where you can discuss it. So JR and I just put literally, I think it was 30 minutes on the calendar. Might even have been once a month and then it became bi-weekly. Like we just said once a month, we're both kind of like cut from the same cloth. Let's just talk once a month, just about like some ideas, you know? And some of these ideas were just like, yeah, that's not going to happen. You know, like, it's like really like, but it was a safe space to discuss it. And, and then one day it just clicked, you know? So I think the, the brainstorming with the right people is key. Too many people, JT, they start like you, you come up with this brilliant idea. I'm being very honest with you. You come up with a brilliant idea. And the first thing someone's going to say to you is, oh, yeah, but the insurance on that is crazy. Right. right. right? Why? Like, I, yeah. Yeah, when I when I said I was gonna buy a, a condo, somebody said to me, "Yep, the roof might collapse." <laughs> right, and I was like, yeah, "Well, I mean, yeah, it could." But somebody told me they said if Justin, this is weird advice, but if Justin Timberlake was gonna buy a mansion in San Francisco, that roof could collapse too. Right, right. you know what I mean? Like yeah. it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter when somebody started. I always say this: when somebody started Craigslist, they just started Craigslist. Right. They didn't think of all the potential problems and the scams and the, you know, the fraud and the killings and everything that happened on there over the past. They just started Craigslist. So don't hang around with people that are going to tell you, wow, that'll never work. That's very important. It's very important. Yeah. You can't, you can't, you know. it sounds like, you know, yeah, you can't yeah, surround yourself. I have like, I have a big sign that says be faithful. And like in the Bible, like faith is the opposite of fear. And you just cannot live in fear at all. And I realized like when I hit my stride in football, it was when I eliminated fear from my mind and I was not afraid to get hurt or die on the football field. 
And it's just like, you have to apply the same principle in business. It's like, I have a friend who his market is, is Waco, right? He has eight, eight houses in Waco. And I'm like, I was talking to him uh, last week. I'm like, dude, don't you ever get scared that like, you know, you might not have rent for a week or, or for a year. He's like, yeah, dude, you know how I combat that fear? I buy more properties. <laughs> it's like, he has no fear at all. Like the roof could collapse. Who cares? Like it's going to happen regardless and you'll live with the consequences. Yeah, you have to like, that's a very good point. And like, I'll tell you a quick one, but this is a true story. A lot of people think it's bogus, but we were sitting around in college early days. And one of my friends said, we were, we were sitting there, you know, you drink your beers or whatever. And he comes up with this idea. I swear. He goes, we should start this thing where you can send, you can send you text messages. I can send it to you, JT, JR. I can send you a text message and, you know, but it goes out to everybody in the whole world and you just have to keep it short. It can't be like a really long text, but like, it just goes out to the <laughs> people Twitter. were like, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And he was like, no, but like, think about that's it. You could have different people just sending their <laughs> thoughts out. I swear to God, this is Boomer JR. He, he yeah, came up with this idea and he's like, and people are like, that's sketchy. That's that will never. Now, a lot of, a lot of effort goes into finding a company like Twitter, but like, He's sitting there describing a very big idea and people are just shutting him down. You know, yeah. like, so if you surround yourself with people like, now Waco rent real estate, no, that's not going to work. Then, then you're never really going to get past that. So that's a big, big part of it. Yeah. I, my, my thing, JT, if you're, if you're going in as a, as an individual contributor, sales rep, or like an early sales rep, like you're trying to do, or as an early sales leader, uh, which you'll eventually, you know, that's, I mean, that's a, there's one thing to have a big idea and build it, but there's another, there's another huge option to make a lot of money coming in and, and helping other people bring their ideas to market as sales leader. So that's what I've done in my career. And like the things you talked about are super important. The team, the, the, the total addressable market, right. Being in a space that's, that's exciting to you. But I think the other big thing that people miss out on when they look at a business is especially as a salesperson is what is the unique IP, like the ownership of IP that we have that if I can convince a customer that this piece of functionality, this feature that only we can do is super important for them to solve their problem, then I can close the deal. Then I can, I can sell the software. And I think companies that find that nugget about themselves that are going after a large TAM um, and that have the right team, those are the companies that can get really big really fast because they figure out a way to position their technology to the economic buyer in a way where it's like it, it goes from it goes from a nice to have to a need because you've convinced the person with the that pulls the purse strings that this piece of technology that you have, this this specific IP that you possess against your competitors in this large market is critically important for them to solve this problem. That's how like the last company I was at that, that IBM bought for $2 billion, we figured out how to do that. We figured out how to do it at scale and it allowed us to grow a really big business really fast because then we just rinsed and repeated that at every industry and company that we could. Um, so that's kind of the thing that I look for on top of the stuff that you already know about JT, like that other stuff's important too. Like you can have really unique IP in a small market. Nobody cares. Right. Um, you know, except for that small market, but if you have unique IP in a big market, 
and you and you figure out a way to position that in a in an evaluation or in a deal, then you can grow a really big business really quickly. Make sure you get it right too, because I think some of the early days at Shift, like we saw the we saw it working, and we said, "Oh, that would let's scale this thing." And then it was yeah. like, I think it was Jr. He's like, "Well, let's let's get it right a little bit more. You know, yeah. let's let's get it more right before we put it out there." That's yeah. I think that's so, important. That's that's yeah. I think uh, I like the way you you explain it. JR, you say unique IP, and that's the way force management uh, explains it to it's like, what's your unique IP, but some people will say unique differentiator, but I think IP yeah. is is a stronger word because it's an intellectual property and nobody can duplicate it. Uh, exactly. So like, quick question to you guys, because I'm just curious, like, what's y'all's unique IP that, you know, you hang your hat on? For shift group? Yeah, for shift group. Um, it's our It's our training. Our training is is second to none, right? I think anybody could can. There's other companies that help athletes transition, right? Yeah. I think the two things that we do very uniquely is how we prepare them for the transition. Is you know, John and I have 30 years of selling unbudgeted software into the market. So these kids come out of our training camp, and they're they're already probably six months ahead of any peer that they have going into a BDR role. Um, and that's because it's in John and I's head, right? Like the training is, is elite and makes them elite. Um, and I think now we've gotten to the point where um, we've developed like great relationships at the athletic department level with schools like Rice and, you know, dozens and dozens of these other schools. So that when a co- if another company were to come into those schools and say, this is what we do, we're pretty we're we're pretty well positioned for a Rice University to say, well, we have a partner that does that already, and we have here's ten success stories of who they did it with last year. Um, yeah. So I think that piece is 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 a it's not necessarily IP, but it's important, like the building those relationships. Um, but I would say our training is always because our training's hard too, JT. So like we're weeding out a lot of people that just want a job. The people who come out the other end are ready for a career, which is a big difference, right? There's a lot of BDRs. Um, and actually, this is a this is a really good transition into our final question. Um, my dad used to have, I grew Wait, up in JR, a- JR, sorry, before, before you interrupt on that, I just also want to comment on the, the, the IP stuff too, real yes. quick, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. So Go ahead. Uh, one thing I learned in doing some of the uh, MBA courses that I did at UMass about um, entrepreneurship is having a like time in the market and having a network right so like to just pile on jr's final comment there is like sure our training's great can somebody develop a training program for athletes sure but we were very early on in this in this uh space so we have a network of athletes a network of schools and of companies that have invested in come on board and i think that's what can also separate you. Like if you just, if you want to disrupt something, that's great. But if you also are the first one to get into some sort of space and then you can build out a network there, like if I'm thinking of PayPal, right? They did payments by email. Right. Anybody can do that, but they did it early on. And then eventually they had such a strong network that it would be really hard for somebody else to come in and go to Rice and say, look, we want to train your student athletes. Like shift groups already there. So there will be competition in the future, but I think we we solved this space where people weren't looking out for the athletes. I think that is a big part of it too. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and, and we don't charge the athletes either, which I think is also very unique. There's, there's tons of BDR boot camps. A lot of them you got to pay for. Um, we, we, we consider our, and that's a quality check for those companies, right? Like if you get a, if you get a, a guy who's been a middle school teacher for, for seven years and decides he wants to do B2B technology sales, um, and you, you're going to give them training, you, you have to get money from that guy to make sure that, you know, the time you spend with them is worth it. We don't have to do that because of the type of people we go after, right? Like these are already high, high achieving, you know, high resilient, highly coachable people. So that's our quality check is, is if you're a college athlete, you're part of 2.4% of the college population, 19 million people go to college and 460,000 of them play a sport. So you're already super special. So we don't need to charge you, right? Like we, we're going to trust you to, to, to put yourself fully into this. And I think that that's definitely unique. And we're trying to grow it as quickly as we can to John's point. So we have that network effect. Yeah, and not just the network. I'll, I'll let you ask this last question, but not just the network effect on the schools you work with. Like, think about all the shift group athletes that y'all have already put through. Those athletes are networking with each other, and it's just totally. you know, it's like it's an elite club. That's what you yep. like. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and the way the way we built the training was was by design, JT, because my dad. My dad was a hockey coach. He used to say to me and my brothers, and my, both my brothers played college hockey. One of my brothers played in the NHL and the Olympics. Like he raised, he raised professionals, and and that's what we're trying to do. So like he used to have this saying where it's like, hey, there's a lot of people that play hockey, but there's not a lot of hockey players. And I think you can apply that to any sport, right? A lot of people played pop Warner football. They weren't football players, right? Like it, you got to be a professional. Like you gotta, it's gotta be who you are. It's gotta be in your bones. And I think the highest praise, we think the highest praise you can give to a salesperson is saying, Hey, this guy, this girl is a pro. So the last question is in, in, in your experience so far, what does being a professional in sales mean to you, JT? I think it means just being buttoned up, right? Like, look, be on time, right? Be diligent. Think through everything. Like think through all your opportunities. Think through your prospecting plan. Think through like your meetings with your manager. Like think through everything. Have an agenda in the calendar. Don't just put time on someone's calendar to put time. Like it's just I don't I don't I mean I think it's just be a pro. Like we saw the we saw the guys who were professionals. Like you saw your dad, he's a professional. You saw the, the, the best football players on the team, how they carry themselves. Uh, like, I think every athlete who's played high-level sports, they know what being a pro is. And it's just, are they going to do it or are they not going to do it? Yep. I love that. I like that. Be buttoned up. Be buttoned up. I like that. Yeah, cross your T's, cross your T's, dot your I's. There's another, another T-shirt for us. Be buttoned up. I love it. Button up. <laughs> Button up. <laughs> That's great. Well, thanks a lot, JT. This is a uh, this is a pleasure this morning. Yes, great way to start my day in Vegas. This wraps up this episode of Merchants of Change. If you enjoyed this episode, the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in working with us, please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io.